Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, as I mentioned, we are in, as Jeff said, we are here in Hebrews chapter 6, the second part of 6. And so if you haven't uh, been with us here uh, in our study of Hebrews, I want to just share a few things with you. Um, The book of Hebrews is written by, we don't know who. Um, Some people say Paul. I can definitely see that could be. Um, There's definitely some clear things that he talks about that seem very similar to some of his epistles and some of the letters he he wrote to the churches, but we're really not sure. And one of the things we said is we think that maybe by God's sovereign purposes, he doesn't show the who the writer is because the focus here in the whole book of Hebrews is really on Christ and who he is. He is the fulfillment of all things. And so we looked last week um, at this idea, and the, I should say the, the audience here is Hebrews. They are people that um, were Jewish, have a long tradition in the Jewish tradition and, and heritage, and, and they've grown up under the law and all of the system of the sacrifices, uh, understanding all of that uh, very well. And all of a sudden, the Messiah comes. And now they're being told that, okay, the fulfillment of all those things have happened. And now it's Jesus. And, and you can imagine this, this shift that they had to make here after hundreds and hundreds of years of the law and, and obeying the law and, and thinking that that is the way that, that we need to be righteous is obeying the law. And now Jesus comes along and says, well, I've fulfilled the law. I'm the fulfillment of all those things. And now you must trust in me and, and you will be saved by grace, not of works. It was a tough one for them to make. And that's why only God can bring those people across that. And so these Hebrews, as he's writing here, we, like I said, we don't know who the author is, but he's writing this letter to them. He's, he's doing a couple things. He's extolling who Christ is. He says he's better than the angels. He's, he's higher than the angels. He's, he's higher than Moses. He's, he's a, a great high priest. He's the perfect high priest. He's the high priest of all high priests. He's all of those things. But then he's also challenging some of them because what we believe here in, in this text last week is that several of those that he's writing to, while they've, they've had the enlightenment of the, the scriptures and they, they have understood that Jesus has come and he's claimed to be who he says he is, and they, they've kind of tasted of all of that, they've chosen to go back to the law. They've, they've went back to that way of thinking. They just haven't been able to make that, that step of faith and say, no, I'm going to put my faith and trust in Christ. I'm going to go back to the law. I'm going to go back to what I know. I'm, I'm going to go back to the, the concrete thing of, no, I have to be good. And so he warns them and he admonishes them. And we looked at that last week. In fact, it's a, it's a warning and saying, look, you, you may know all these things. And, and what I tried to impress upon you last week is that some of us come and we we have fellowship and we worship, we sit into the teaching of God's word, and yet if we do not accept and, and trust in Christ and him alone, we are really stepping back under the law. Many of us, many people that I talk to, which breaks my heart, many people that I talk to, when I ask them, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? They revert back to the law. They say, well, I've, I've been good. I've tried to do well. That's just our culture. It's a merit-based system. And it's that tug of the world. And, and, and we're, we feel condemned by the, the God of this world who's condemning us and saying, well, you're not good. And, and so we have this, we don't have any assurance of our faith. Many even that, that attend regularly in, in Christian services 
I believe, don't have an assurance of their faith. I'm not saying they're not a believer. I'm just saying they don't live with an assurance that, that when we die, we will go to heaven. That what God has said and promised us, we can hold fast to. And so what the writer is doing is saying, look, if, if you're not... Um, if you haven't stepped out in faith, you should not have that assurance. And that's what we looked at last week. You should not have it. In fact, he's warning them that saying, look, if you don't have it, you need to get right with the Lord. And if you do not, you, if you step away from all that God has offered you, you may not be able to ever come back to repentance because your heart may be so hard. But now here he's shifting gears. And now he's writing to really, I think the real audience of his book in, in a larger perspective is those that have believed. And he wants to encourage them. Can you imagine? I mean, we need encouragement. Amen? Our walk, right? Can you imagine living in the first century? Rome is dominating. The Jews, the Hebrews here, were under, really, um, their law and order. They, they lived under a system of law-based things and sacrifices which they could never feel really a peace or assurance whether they've, they've done enough, they've done, they've done good enough. Jesus now, this man named Jesus has come and been crucified and has been risen from the dead is what everybody's been saying and some people have seen him. And he's basically said, if you will trust me and give me your life, you will enter into heaven because of what I've done, not because of anything you have done. Somebody just turned their world upside down. They need assurance that that was true. Because they're leaving everything that was so solid for them. And they're now being asked to leave that and say, yes, still obey that, still want to fulfill the law, but you, there's no hope and trust in the law. In fact, the law has just been pointing to your sin. It's just been reminding you that you need a Savior. That's really the whole point of that. And yet, all of this history now is coming about and all of this revelation is coming about of who Christ is and they're being asked to step out in faith and trust. And so the author senses that weight and he so badly wants to encourage them in this crucial time in their faith. I think many times about when I think about a brand new believer, we want to come alongside brand new believers and man, we just want to encourage them because they are making a huge step of faith they're, they're trusting in Christ for the very first time. And, and, and maybe that's going to cost them relationships with their family. Maybe it's going to cost them some interactions with friends or neighbors or, or whatever it may be. Other people, maybe their work, how they're going to live their life, how they're going to interact with their spouse or their children. And, and coming to Christ is challenging at times. That doesn't mean that God is not working. It doesn't mean that he's not carrying us and holding us. I'm just saying the reality is in our walk with Christ, it can be challenging. And so he wants to remind them of some things and give them hope. And so that's really our big idea for this morning as we look through the text. Our hope is anchored in the truthfulness of God's word. Our hope is anchored there. So what is the author going to try and do here? He's going to remind them, because see, they have God's word. They have the, the Old Testament. They have the Septuagint, which was the Greek Old Testament. They, it was taught frequently, and they went to synagogue every Sabbath, and they learned, and they, they, they read from it. And now what the author is saying, your hope is anchored in there. Those promises that God has made. And he's going to remind them of some of these promises. And more promises now are being fulfilled in Christ. And so let's 
look at it. We have several verses. We're not going to be able to cover every little detail in all of this. So some of it, um, if you have questions about it that we don't cover, please feel free to come and ask me. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Though we speak in this way, what is he saying there? Now remember what he just got done doing. He just got done admonishing and warning very strictly and sternly those that have fallen away from the faith, those that have not trusted in Christ. So he's just saying, though we speak in this way, like I'm speaking in this way. Yes, I have. I've been very harsh. I've been very firm about what it means to to not believe. Yet, in your case, those that are the hearers of the word and have received it have been born again. And he believes that, and you can see this, yet in your case, beloved, this idea that there's an intimate relationship with them. Sometimes we would say, well, those are even the saints, the believers, right? He's believing that these people have been born again believers. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This idea here where it says um, we feel sure of better things. What are those better things? Things that belong to salvation. These better things, right? Because he's just told them that the things that they're producing are thistles and thorns just, just a few verses ago. And that, that they would perish, that they would be burned. But yet something's better here and that they belong to salvation. So clearly he's making the statement and he's making the case here that I believe that you are believers. I also like how he says here, says we feel sure of better things. That in the Greek there, that means that it's, it's a plural thing. It's like that, that we, the body, because whoever this author is, he's writing probably from a church. Maybe he's a pastor of some sort. Maybe he's an elder in a church. And so he's writing, he says, we feel this way about you. We do. And I, I think about that even here in our church. You know, we, when I speak, and I, I speak on behalf of the, the church, on behalf of the elders, I speak on behalf of of the membership. So when we're, we're praying for someone, it's just not me praying. It's that, that we are caring for you. We are loving you. We want these things for you as a congregation, as a body of believers. And that these things belong to salvation. And so how do we know what these things are? Well, we're not 100% sure, but, but one way I think that we can be um, a little hint of what he's probably talking about is we fast forward here and to Hebrews chapter 10, because if you stay in the text of Hebrews, it helps kind of define what the author here is talking about. So if we look at Hebrews chapter 10, and I would encourage you to turn there this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. Here he's going to talk about um, and remind them of the former days when they first became believers. So now he's he's saying there's, there's these beautiful things that belong to salvation, these better things. And let's see what those better things are, because these things belong to salvation. Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when you, were, when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who thus so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So what he's saying is in the midst of all of this suffering, all of these things that are going on, you have better things 
that belong to salvation. You have a hope that belongs to salvation. You have a faith that belongs to salvation, right? Knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What belongs to salvation is you have a possession of it. It is not something you're trying to obtain. It's, it's God has given it to us. We have a possession of it and we abide in it. We rest in it. We have an assurance in it. Unlike the law where we're always trying to keep it, right? We're always trying to obtain it. He's saying, no, you have this. Christ has gotten this for you. And we're going to see that as this whole passage here begins to unfold a little bit. Then it goes on here, it says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So God is not unjust. So he's, what he's just saying is, is the look. God is very aware of all that you've done. He's not going to overlook it. He remembers it. He knows it. And, and what is he saying? He says, he will not forget it. But then he says, but w- what is it, that the specific object of this? It's your work. It's the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints. It's, it's, he's, he's commending them. He's saying, look, I know that you've served the saints. I know that you've been part of the believers and you've cared for people and you've encouraged people and you've served people. That's what's most important. And he says, and you're still doing it. This idea that God doesn't overlook our works. Now, I want to be very careful here. Because when I use the word work, some people say, see, God is judging us based on our works. To some degree, that's true. I believe that someday in heaven, we will be rewarded based on our works. But we are not saved by our works. We're not, we're not, we're not measured to be, and there's no merit in our works as far as salvation goes. That is all Christ. It is all his death and resurrection, the work of the cross, his atoning sacrifice is what saves us. But God calls us to live holy. As I think I mentioned last week, we hear a lot of great messages that say, you know, um, and I've, I've said these things, and I think these things are true. Um, he, Romans 8.1, now, therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And that, we, we, we praise God for that. We, we rest in, in Christ. But as the church, we should live holy. It is not enough just to say, oh, I rest in the grace of God. Yes, we do. And, and, abs- and you should. But you should have a desire to live holy. And I think that's the, the second part of this that's really hard for some in the Christian community because we want to we abide in the grace, but to, but to step out and to live holy, to die to ourselves, to be salt and light in the world, yeah, it's not as much fun. And so we just, want, well, we just want the good thing, but we don't have to really die to the rest of it to really honor and please God. And, and that's what we call sanctification. It's this idea of if we're continuing to turn ourselves over to the Lord for allow the Holy Spirit to transform us as we walk. But I will tell you that when we get to the end, when we get to the end of Scripture and in Revelation, and the Revelation first starts and um, the Lord is speaking here and through a messenger and, and he's speaking to the seven churches in the first three chapters. And I'm not going to read all of this, but I just want to show you what, what, what the messenger says, what the Lord says. In Revelation 2, Chapter 2, he's speaking to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So we see here that God is very aware of how, 
how that church was living, how those people were living and their works. In chapter 2, verse 19, to the church at Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patience endurance, and that you, your latter works exceeded your first. See the, some of the similarities there that we see in the church? Patience, endurance, faith, service. So here when, when the writer of Hebrews is referencing these things, he's commending them for those things. We see that God is also commending them for those things in the very end there. Revelations chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1, the church at Sardis. I know your works. Now listen to this one. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now there you could almost say, well, is that the group he was talking to last week? You have a reputation of being alive. You, you've made some professions of things, but you're dead. You've not been born again. You're just, you're just dead. And finally, in Revelations 3, verse 8, to the church at Philadelphia, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I kind of I relate to that one a lot. I feel like a simple man with little power. But God says, but if you will just keep my word and not deny my name, you will bring me honor. And that is, that is our goal as the body of Christ, is to obey his word, on, not, not deny him, not be ashamed of him. And so when it says there, for God is not unjust as to overlook your works and love for those who have shown his name in serving the saints as you still do, I just want to affirm to you, he is aware of our works. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 10, I think it says he's prepared good works for us, for us to do, to, to be involved in those good works. So what do we see here? It's the first point I want to make about hope. Our hope is displayed through our works and love for the saints. Our hope is displayed. It's on display. It's, it's, it's there for everyone to see. And, and many times we talk about the fruit or, or how do we know if a, tree is bearing, uh, if a tree is bearing fruit. It's because it's displaying fruit. It's, it's bearing fruit. For those of you who know, I'm a, we don't really have a garden because it always turns to weeds. Um, but I am a strawberry fanatic. I planted 75 strawberry plants last year. And I am meticulous about that bed, those beds. They're mounded, they're tarped, and, and you know what? If you care for that and you cultivate it the way it should and you fertilize it and you make sure it gets watered and you pull those green leaves back, what is in there? A harvest of beautiful, lush strawberries. 150 quarts of strawberries. I pick every day. I'm so tired of strawberries. <laughs> We've been giving strawberries away. We've frozen over 100 quarts of strawberries. 100 pounds, excuse me, 100 pounds, which is about 100 quarts. I guess my point there is, is that it's on display. The, the, what, 
what's coming from the plant is on display, and that's how we know it's good. And you know, in a few years, those strawberry plants will cease to produce, and so we will tear them up. And so it's very much like our life as believers. We will produce. It's what we talked about last week in 7 and 8. It says we will produce good things, right? If we produce good things, it'll be a blessing. If we cultivate it, it'll be a blessing. But if we don't produce good things and thorns and thistles take over, he says he will be cursed and it will be burned. It is not useful. And so our hope is displayed through our works and the love of the saints. Now, does that mean that if we do good works, we'll be saved? No, that's not what it's saying. It says that if we love the Lord, good works will be a byproduct of that. And, and so if you want to be sure of your salvation, you say, well, I, I, I believe, I have faith, I, I'm struggling, but I believe. Are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing fruit? John chapter 13, verse 35. By this all, and this is Jesus speaking here now. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Are you loving one another well? I am thrilled to be a part of this family because I think we do love one another well. We have room for improvement. Because of our sinful nature, we always want to recoil. We we, we want to do our own thing. And and many times we don't want to think of others better than ourselves. but, But we are pushing back against that by God's grace. Verse 11, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 in the first part of 12. It says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. Here's this we again. Like, we desire. <laughs> we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of the hope until the end. What, what, I think what the author is saying here says, we, we want you the same earnestness you've been serving others and you've been dying to yourself, the same desire to do this. We want that to be emboldened. We want it to, that same earnestness to endure to the end, to, to keep it going, to, to live that life out. Do not waver. Paul says all the time, run the race, finish the race, do it completely Don't stop. Don't let anybody knock you off that course. Continue in the faith. And once again, this idea of we desire, this idea that the church is encouraging one another. We looked at that last week, that that we are encouraging one another. We've looked at that a few weeks here. To have the full assurance of the hope. We have hope, but the author's saying, I want you to have the full assurance of it. I want you to be so saturated and knowing what's going to happen in the future that God has died for you, he's forgiven you, and that your eternity is secure. I want you to rest in that, no matter what is happening in your life. No matter what doctor diagnosis has been given, no matter what is happening in your financial situation, no matter what, that you have an assurance in Christ and that that hope will endure till the end so that you may not be sluggish. So what do we see here? Assured and active hope keeps us from being sluggish and apathetic. You know, I was, at, at 56, I'm, I'm slowing down a little bit, or a lot, and, um, and I don't get the exercise I used to get. And I told my wife yesterday, I gotta get back on the treadmill. And, and why is that? Because when I'm active on the treadmill, I'm not sluggish. It, it, is the, it is the 
antidote to my aging. It's the antidote to my energy, lack of energy. If I'm active, if I, if I'm, if I have an assurance of my faith and I'm active in my faith, it keeps me from the other side of the equation. It keeps me from being sluggish. It keeps me from being apathetic because I keep stoking the coals. It's, it's like a fire. If you, if you don't put any wood on, if you don't do anything, if you don't keep it active, it begins to smolder and, and die out. And so we have to keep it active. We have to keep it, it, it stoked. And, and when we do that, it continues to burn and burn bright and it keeps it from being sluggish and apathetic. So how do we apply this to our, our walk with Christ? How do we apply this in our Christian walk? How can you make sure that you are stoking the fire of your faith? There's many, many, many things. I'm going to give you a few basic principled things from Scripture. You need to be in weekly attendance at a church. I know you say, well, all pastors say that, right? Yeah. You do. I was thinking the other day, I've been, I've been coming here for, um, since 1998, however many years that is, 24. I don't know. I could probably count on one or two hands the Sundays I've missed. And I'm not saying that proudly. I'm just saying that that's an amazing thing that God has done in his grace. Because if you knew me before that, I didn't attend for 10 years, probably once, except for it was a wedding. And I lived very sinfully. But the thing that has kept my faith stoked is being in the fellowship of believers. I talked to somebody this week and says, well, you know, I don't, I don't know that I need to be in church. I believe. I said, I know, you can be a believer and not attend church. But, but is really that what God wants? He's established his church for you, for his glory. Why wouldn't you want to be in the, the fellowship of believers? To sit under the teaching, to have corporate worship. I stood up here when you guys were singing as I was getting ready to come on stage and, and I could hear all of your voices singing and I'm like, I am so blessed to be in the fellowship of believers, Father. It is the thing that stokes our faith. Do you have a set time to be in the word? Do you have a commitment? You say, oh yeah, but I don't really like to read. Okay, you know what? They have that on tape and books and CDs and podcasts. You can, you can list it on every app. You can listen to the Bible, any translation you want, all right? You can do it in your car. There's no excuse. Look, I've tried those excuses. It doesn't work, right? I mean, I'm, I struggle sometimes being in the Word, you know, as much as I should. I, I do. I, I wish I could tell you that I'm in the, every morning I'm in it and I'm, I'm praying through it. I'm not. And I, I, I rest in the assurance, but I, I want to change that about myself. If you don't want to be apathetic and sluggish, you've got to be in the Word. Have regular Bible conversations, biblical conversations. Speak about the Scripture. Make it part of your life. Talk about your relationship with God. Ask people questions. I'm not talking about going out and do street evangelism. If that's what God wants you to do, that's great. But I'm talking about just speaking to your children, to your spouse about biblical things. Talk about Scripture. Talk about the, the greatness of who God is. Tell you how you see God moving. Talk about how you've been convicted of sin and, and you just want to share it with somebody and, and say, look, I need to bring this into the light because I know in John chapter 3 I'm supposed to bring my sin into the light so that it doesn't dominate me and I want to bring it out. Would you listen? We can do this through fellowship with discipleship groups, which we're working on, and life groups and 
You can do this in your family time together. It doesn't have to be a, a time when all the family gets together and sits around and has a Bible study. It can be over the dinner table. It can be in the car for five minutes on the way to basketball practice or football practice. Have regular biblical conversations. Otherwise, you'll get sluggish. And you'll be apathetic to spiritual things. And then obviously, just pray daily. Have have a regular conversation with God all the time about everything. About your joys, about your sorrows, about your needs. I spoke with someone just yesterday. They said, I am talking to God so much because of what's going on in their life. I think they felt like they were wearing his ear out. And I said, that's exactly what the Father wants. He wants our dependence, our focus to be on him. All right, let's look at the rest of 12 there. So I want to go back and read part of that again. It says, but to have the full assurance until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promise. But imitators, he's, he's telling us to be imitators, right? To be imitators. How do we, how do we see this, right? Well, we look, if, if we look at John chapter 13, verse 15, this is uh, Jesus has washed the, the disciples' feet. What does he say to them? In verse 15 of chapter 13, it says, For I have given you an example so that you should do just as I have done to you. He's saying, imitate me. I have just got down on my knees and washed your feet. Imitate me. Because what you're going to be walking into, you're going to need to love each other sacrificially. You're going to need each other. You're going to have to be bonded to each other. And church, we need to do that more and more and more if we are going to be a healthy church and if we are going to be a real light and salt in our world today. Because what does it say? They'll know you for your love for one another. And that talk is cheap. We can say, oh yeah, I I love the people at the church. Are you serving one another? Are you praying for one another? When was the last time you called up a brother or sister and said, you know what, you've just been on my heart. Can I just pray for you? You got something you want to pray? Can I just pray for you? Can you? Tell me something you need me to pray for you for. I just want to pray for you. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Can you say that? I want to be able to say that. Be imitate me as I imitate Christ. He can say that with full assurance because he is following Christ. Can you say that? Would you want someone to imitate you? Because your kids are doing it. Your neighbors are looking at you. Your coworkers are looking at you. Your spouses are looking at you. Your fellow church family are looking at you. Do you want them to imitate your behavior? Believe me, that's a sanctifying thing to meditate on. I, I, I want to be in a place where I can say, yeah, I, I want people to imitate me. Not, not because of who I am, because of what, what Christ is doing in me. You know, years ago, when I was leading student ministry, um, not nearly as well as it being led today, I might add, but um, I decided not to drink anymore. I was not, I, was not a, I didn't get drunk. I, I had the right and the freedom to drink. But I'm like, I want these kids to imitate me. And I don't want that. I don't want that to be a stumbling block for the kids. I don't, I don't want them to walk in and, and at a restaurant and see me sitting there having a, a glass of wine or a beer. Now, I'm not saying if you're doing that, I'm not condemning you. 
I'm just saying that, that I want to live in a way. Now, there's many other places where I'm, I'm struggling to live as I should. So don't, don't hear that like I'm all that. I'm just saying there's are places where I've had some victory over those type of things. One of the things that I've I'm, I'm really been praying through and getting more and more victory by God's grace is, is not, not speaking about people. I, it's, it's gossip, but I, I think my heart's in the right place sometimes, but I just need to, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Like, it's out there and like, oh, no. Just the other day, I'm like, no, because it, it's here. <laughs> it comes. The, the key is having the filter to stop it before it gets out. Take every thought captive and Submission under Christ, I think is what's how the scripture phrases it. Because sin starts in the mind. So what do we see here? Imitate people who have their hope set on Christ. Imitate people, right, that have their hope set on Christ. Sometimes in, in marriage counseling, what we'll say is, um, tell me a couple that you would like to m- mirror your, your marriage on. You know what's so sad? Many people can't even name a couple. So tell me someone that has a great marriage. Not perfect. Nobody has perfect marriages. And many people don't have anybody in their life. And we wonder why the state of marriage is, because nobody has anybody to imitate. Nobody has anybody to say, wow, that's how it's done. That's how you die. That's how you serve one another sacrificially. That's, that what it, that's what it means to follow Jesus and to put others better than yourselves and to think of better about other people. And believe me, if you imitate those who are following Christ, then someone will be able to imitate you. Someone will be able to follow you. As Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 6, 13 through 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by to whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, there's a lot there. We're not going to be able to unpack all this, but I will tell you that this, this, this whole picture of Abraham is this beautiful reminder. Because remember, they're Hebrews. Abraham was like Father Abraham. I mean, like, he is pulling out the big gun. He's saying, this is the rock star of your heritage. And how did God interact with him? And what did God do with Abraham? Now, I want to remind you that when, when God first begins to work with Abraham, he's 75 years old. So if you think that you're past the time where God can do something in your life, no. He's 75 years old. I want to read you some passages. We're going to kind of go through these pretty quickly. So we first pick it up in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now Abraham's name wasn't Abraham yet, it was Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, meaning your family, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will... And and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Whoa. How would you like to hear that from God? Right? I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And people that dishonor you, I'm going to curse. I don't know that Abraham has any idea what all that means yet. 
He's leaving his family. He's leaving his homeland. He's going to where he doesn't, he's just, God's just going to take him and he's just going to follow God wherever God takes him to go. Boy, wouldn't that be great if we could live that way in our life? And so Abram, his wife Sarai at the time, his nephew Lot, they head to the land of Canaan, which is the land that God is going to promise them. We would say that is Israel today. Verse 7 of chapter 12, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Now he's in Canaan, he's in the land. To your offspring, I will give you this land. Now, Abram's thinking, great, because Abraham's got tons of family. He, he is wealthy. Um, if you read scripture, he has servants, he has livestock, he has, I mean, this is not just Abraham and a few people. This is a, this is a whole tribe of people and, and wealth that is, is moving that Abraham has. And he's promising that he's going to give him this land. Genesis chapter 17, verse 19. Sarah, your wife, shall bear, bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I shall establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. I won't get all, all of this, but Abraham's like 100 years old now. He's waited still. 25 years, and the thing is still unfolding. In Genesis chapter 22, and this is really where I think the author of Hebrews references about swearing, by God swearing his, his oath. 22 verses 15 through 17. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So the Lord is, is declaring here and making, his, he's swearing, he's having an oath. Because you have done this. Now, what has he done? He was willing to offer up his son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. That's where we're at. He's had Isaac. He's a young boy now. God says, I want, I want the boy's life. I want you to sacrifice him to me. Abraham says, okay, I will. Why would he do that? Because he trusted God so much that he thought God would bring him back from the dead. What, what? That's why it says that Abraham's faith was credited him as righteousness. Can you imagine having that type of faith? And so he does this, and then God provides a, a sacrifice so he doesn't have to do it. It says, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. He's going to make him great. Now, just on a side note, and I've said this before, that land that he's promised, that Israel, was out of Israel's possession for almost a thousand years. And what did, they, what did God do in the 40s? He gave him that exact piece of land back. I mean, if that doesn't just wow you. And he sustains them. I've said this many times. You've heard me say this. This little tiny piece of property with probably seven, eight million Jews and, and Arabs. And there's 260 million Arabs around them. Many of those countries, not all the people, many of those countries would love to see Israel wiped off the face of the map and yet he sustains them right there. I mean, that, God is just saying, there ain't anybody else that can do what I'm doing right there. Do you see that? And I gave him the exact land that I promised Abraham. So what do we see here? Our hope must endure. Abraham waited years ultimately 30, 40 years for, for all this fulfillment to come about, for, for, for God to be able to bring him a son, to, to bring him to a place where he was going to offer him up, to, that all that would be. And, and Abraham didn't even see the fulfillment of all of it. We are still seeing the fulfillment today. 
I think about this idea of enduring. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The author says this. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us. Well, that, that's, a, that's a good word for today. Run with endurance. Because I'm telling you that if we're going to live in this world and we're going to be salt and light, you're going to have to have some endurance. Because the water is flowing against you. But if the Lord is for you, who can be against you? Live in a way that defies what the world is trying to say and do. But notice what he says about this running. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, right? Just Paul, right? As I follow Jesus, imitate me. Here's the same kind of picture. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's saying, look, he's, he's a great example. He's the founder of our faith. We can follow him. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There's a joy. I, I love this passage. I, I talk about it frequently. The joy that was set before him was all the things the Father was going to accomplish. All the, the people that were going to come to be reconciled back to God and to bring God glory. Jesus kept his eyes on what the Father was doing, what he wanted, and what was going to bring him glory. And he knew that there was going to be something between that joy that was going to cause him to suffer. And it was the cross. It was the pain and the suffering of the crucifixion. But he didn't keep his eyes on that. He kept his eyes on the joy before it, beyond it. So many of us get stuck on the pain and suffering. And I get it. I get it. But, but what, the, what the author here is saying is we have, to get, we have to look past it. This is the whole idea of hope. We have hope in what, what something better is coming. Abraham had to have hope that was something better was coming. We can go all through Scripture and see that this, this idea of enduring through difficult seasons And he goes on, it says, despising the shame is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we endure and when we keep our eyes set on Christ and the joy that is beyond the suffering, we will achieve what God has wanted us to do and we will spend eternity with him. All right, we've got to keep closed up here. Verse 16, 17. For people swear by something greater than themselves. Now, the author is just saying this is, this is the way that we do things here, right, in the world. And in all their disputes, an oath is a final confirmation, right? This is this thing that we do. We, we shake on it. We give our word. Boy, and, th and that day, your word was your bond, man. You, made, you didn't have to sign anything. Was, your word was it, right? So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? The heirs of the promise are, are Abram's offspring, but not just by blood, by faith. By faith. And we're going to see why we are also heirs of that. Right? So when God desired to be show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, right? Because all the heirs of the promise, the promise of Isaac, the promise that he would make them a great nation, right? The unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, this may not sound the right way to say this, but God condescended to us to make that oath. God swore on his own name for us. And you think that's not a big deal? That's a huge deal. Why did, God have to, why did God do that? He doesn't have to lie. He doesn't have to swear. He is God. But to show his, his love and his devotion, his commitment to Abram and to us, he swears on his own name. 
before all the foundation of the earth. He swears that he will do this. That's just beautiful. And he guaranteed it with an oath. Now we get to be heirs in all this, and we see this in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. Okay, now remember, Abraham was the father of faith because he believed and righteousness was credited to him. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only by the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We are grafted in because of faith. We share, we are heirs of the promise. All right. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, the author goes on to say, in which for it is impossible for God to lie, and we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. There it is, the hope that is set before us, right? To hold fast to that hope. That's what he's saying. And he says here, two unchangeable things. That word could be translated immutable. Um, it doesn't change. What are the two things? Primarily what he's talking about here is one is the oath. God doesn't lie. It's unchangeable. He says it. He's promised it. He's guaranteed it. It does not change. It will never change. Two is God's character and the promises. Just his nature of who he is is not going to change. It's unchangeable. So we can count on him. When God says it, we can take it to the bank because he's promised it. And what he's reminding them here is he's showing them, because they've, they've been the byproduct of all of the, the heirs of Isaac. They are here as Israel today because of that. Because when all this started, the nation of Israel hadn't started yet. That didn't happen until Jacob. And so they are seeing the fulfillment of the promise. And, and this author is just reminding them, do you see what God has promised and what he has done? He's fulfilled his word. He's kept his promise. And so because he's kept his promise, now you can trust him. Clearly, these two unchangeable things for which it's impossible for God to lie. Do you ever notice, I mean, do you ever think, God doesn't need to lie. I mean, who would, who would, what's the point of lying? He's the only one that knows. There's no point in lying. He would cease to be God if he lied. He has no point to lie. Because one says, for we have refuge, we have fled for refuge, might have a strong encouragement to hold fast. So what's the point here? Our hope is rooted in the unchangeable character and promise of God. That's where our hope is rooted. Look, I, we stand on the word of God. We, because everything else is movable ground. It is, is shift, sifting sand underneath our feet. We stand on the immutable, unchangeable word of God. All right, last two verses, 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. This hope, this, this unchanging commitment by God, this unchangeable oath, this unchanging, uncompromising, immutable um, character of God in the promise. The author wraps this up. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. This whole idea of this, this picture, this metaphor of an anchor, this idea they understood that this was a, probably many of these people were fishermen. They understood this, this, this culture. An anchor was the thing that kept you hooked. It kept you grounded. It didn't let you drift. Remember, he's been talking about drifting away, falling away. And it's an anchor for your soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, and I'll explain that in a minute, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
So there's this anchor for our soul. It's the hope. It's the, it's the person. It's the promises. It's the oath. It's all solidified. It's all there. We can trust it. We can, but, but he expands and he says, but Christ has done something incredible for us. That hope in him has went behind the curtain. Okay, we've been talking about that. Holy of Holies, the tabernacle was the movable tent when they were in the wilderness and then eventually it became the, the, the temple. But it was the movable tabernacle and inside there was the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, and then there was an inner cord and, and then an inner, and then there was the Holy of Holies. This was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and, and there was a huge curtain that covered it and no one went in there. Once a year, a priest would go in there and make atonement for the, for the sins of the people and, and they would... And, you know, have to go through all this process of making sure that they were clean. Otherwise, that they could be struck dead. And they go in and, and they put blood on the altar. And it, it's this idea that we're atoning for the sins of the nation. And, and what the author is saying, Jesus went in there for you. And he put his own blood on the altar because he's sinless. See, the priest couldn't do that. That's why they had to have a lamb or a bull or a goat or something to go in there. He's saying, no, Jesus went in there on your behalf. He was a forerunner. This, this term forerunner in the Greek could be... He's, he's the scout that went before us. We're going to follow, but someone has to go first and make sure the way is clear. Jesus went and cleared the way to the Father, to reconciliation, to salvation. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on, on our behalf, having become a high priest. He's weighed and made atonement as the high priest for us. After the order of Melchizedek. And I'm going to let you wait until next week because we're going to dive into that next week. So what's the final point here? Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. It's in him going behind the curtain. It's in his perfect sacrifice. It's his sinless life. It's, it's all of it. Our hope is in the accomplishment of the work. It's, our hope is in the promises. But all those promises are leading and pointing to Christ. All of the Old Testament, which is what the author is trying to say, have been fulfilled in Christ. So our ultimate hope is there. We, we have hope in all of these areas, but ultimately it culminates, it manifests itself. It fully is realized in the person and the work of the Son. So the question I have for you is, where is your hope? Where is it? If someone were to ask you today, why would you go to heaven? Is it, is it because I've been good? Is that where your hope is at? I hope not. Because there ain't no hope there. <laughs> there ain't none. You can't be good enough. Is your hope in getting to retirement? Is your hope in more money? Is your hope in your children? Is your hope in marriage? Is it hope in whatever it is? It, that's not where your hope should be. Those are all things given for, for good, for, for our pleasure at times, and, and for God's glory. We can use those things. We can be a part of those things. But that is not where we place our hope. Because all those things will peel away. All those things will be burned up and taken away at some level. Our marriages will end. Our children will leave. <laughs> Hopefully, hope so, hope so. No. Um, no, I'm just kidding you. No, I'm not. Um, Everything will be taken away. Our jobs will end. Our health will ultimately go. Everything will perish. Except the word of God. And he is the word. And he will last forever. There's only one place to put your hope, folks. It's in him. 
So what's your next step? Trust in the word of God. Trust there. Put your trust there. Our hope is in Christ, but we trust the word of God because it tells us about Christ. Put our hope there. Put our hope on Christ, but trust in the word. And see, if, if the word reveals Christ, you've got to know the word. You've got to meditate on the word. So this, it's not enough just to sit here for, for 50 minutes and hear the word preached here. We have to meditate on the word. We have to put it in our hearts. Psalm 119, read the whole thing. It's, it's incredible. But Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in the heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God transforms us. It sanctifies us. It justifies us. It reminds us of where our hope is. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, thank you that we can trust your word. That you would condescend to swear by your name of the promises that you've made. That you would give us such an incredible example in how you made promises to Abraham. And Father, that you have promised that those who believe, those who turn from our sin and repent and trust you wholly, we put our full trust in Christ, you have made a promise that we will be justified, that you will sanctify us, and someday you will bring us home and you will glorify us. And all of it will be for your glory. Father, we praise you this morning. And once again, if there's people here today that do not know you, they have not trusted in that if not trusted in you, Father, will you draw them to yourself today? Will you give them a heart of flesh versus a heart of stone? Will you help them bring their sin into the light with you and confess it before you so that it will be made powerless and it will be overcome by the blood of the Lamb and they will have an assurance of their faith? Father, we praise you and thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.